0: Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We've been teaching a a series for a number of weeks on the Holy Spirit, and we want to continue to go along that line a little bit further tonight. We know and we've looked at uh, some of these scriptures that we'll refer to numerous times. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father he's talking about is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and he said you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth Acts 2 tells us about when that took place on the day of Pentecost there were 120 of the disciples in the upper room in other words the church was 120 strong 120 people had been saved at that point and then it says the Holy Ghost came upon them with the sound of a rushing mighty wind And they all began to speak with tongues. They spilled out into the street. And the people hearing the commotion were astonished. And the Bible tells us that some of them. And of course the Feast of Pentecost brought people in from all quarters. Different parts of the the earth. And they said uh, the report of some of them said we hear them speaking in our languages. The wonderful works of God. Well Peter begins to preach to them and he says this is the promise which was given to us by the prophet Joel that in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And three hundred people I'm sorry three thousand people got saved that day. Well what do they do from there? Here's a brand new thing Certainly by the revelation of the Holy Ghost, Peter understood enough to preach about the prophet Joel. I can't imagine Peter was a student of Joel's prophecy by any means. I believe it must have been just spur of the moment um, revelation or else Jesus had told him a little bit more than what we have uh, recorded before he left. Either way, I'm sure that in many respects they were kind of in the dark as far as knowing what speaking of tongues was all about, I doubt very seriously if they understood the connection between power and tongues. Because Jesus said you'll receive power. He didn't say you'll speak with tongues. He said you'll receive power. Well, every time in the Bible in in the New Testament where it tells us the people that were filled with the Holy Ghost, the evidence is always the same. They always began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there were things that they had to learn just by experience. They didn't have it all outlined for them. They couldn't go get Brother Hagen's teaching series to find out what was what or anybody else's for that matter. And to a great degree, the church, many in the church, to a great degree, many in the church were in the dark about what they had. The church at Corinth certainly was. They didn't know how to rightly use this supernatural utterance in other tongues that they had been given They recognized there was a change and the Holy Ghost certainly began to move in their midst. Paul said of the church at Corinth that they come behind in no good gift. Well, then that would have to mean they've got all the manifestations of the Spirit in operation, right? But many of the things that they were doing were out of order and as a result they weren't effectively reaching the city of Corinth and the, the uh, uh, the unsaved part of the people that lived there. There was room for the unbeliever's those that were unsaved to criticize them, saying they're crazy because all they do is talk in tongues. So Paul gives some insight by the Holy Ghost about what the value of speaking in other tongues is and how it should be how it should operate relative to the church service and in their individual lives. I'm sure Paul learned some of these things, if not all of these things, by experience. He didn't have anybody to teach him either. When he got saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. After three days Ananias came in and laid his hands on him and said Paul receive thy sight and be filled with the Spirit. Well it doesn't tell us that Paul began to speak with tongues at that point. But he tells the Corinthians that he speaks with tongues more than all of them put together. So he started speaking in tongues somewhere. To assume that it would be somewhere other than where other people. When other people began to speak in tongues at the infilling of the Holy Ghost would be an error so he did the same thing now we had the advantage I'm sure you had the same advantage I did to some degree at least we had the advantage of understanding a little bit more about what speaking in tongues is when we got it or when we sought for it that was probably something that not a whole lot of people in Paul's day had the opportunity for so Paul gives us some insight 1 Corinthians chapter 14 we'll read verses 2 and 4 Verse 2, it says, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue. Notice the word unknown is in italics. I don't think it's a problem for it to be there for us. But it's only unknown to us. It's not unknown to God. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. This word mysteries literally means secrets. And many uh, translations, uh, several translations I should say, identify this as secrets. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaks secrets. One's translation, I think it's Wayman's translation, said divine secrets. Now folks, keep that in mind. When we speak in other tongues, we're speaking secrets with God. Now God could have set this thing up any way he wanted to. He didn't have to have tongues as a part of the mix. And he didn't have to have tongues work the way that it works. He certainly didn't have to uh, include speaking divine secrets as a part of that. But the fact that God set it up that way and he leaves us a record, then I think it puts all the more responsibility on us to understand what the purpose of speaking divine secrets with God is. Wouldn't it be a shame to get to heaven and find out we could have been speaking secrets with God that would have changed and altered our lives and other people's lives as well? But that we passed up on that because we didn't utilize it. And folks, I would assume that the reason, the major reason at least, that people would pass up and people fail to use the utterance in other tongues that the Holy Ghost gives us is just like our lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of what it's for. I don't think anybody got filled with the Holy Ghost planning to speak with tongues once and then say, that's it. I don't want any more, any part of that from here on out. So understanding these things is critical to our willingness to speak in other tongues. It amazes me how many Spirit-filled people fail to speak in tongues every day. What could be more important than having the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Creator of the universe, giving us the opportunity at our will at any point in time that we will use it. What a tragedy not to use that. What a tragedy not to tap into the power of God. Now when Jesus said you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me, clearly he's talking about the primary primary reason for being filled with the Holy Ghost as he describes it to the disciples or the apostles is the the help and ministry that provides them. But that's not the only point of power. It's not just so that we can reach everybody else. It provides a benefit for us too. Verse 4 tells us that. It says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, builds himself up, empowers himself, in other words. So there's personal power that comes as a result of speaking with other tongues. Not only that, but there's ministry or public power that's made available to us. Now, that power, when we use the word power, I would assume most people are thinking about healings and miracles and so forth. And thank God that's part of it. But there are other anointings and there are other empowering purposes that God has for other parts of the ministry. Not everybody, Paul says himself, uses the example, are all workers of miracles. Well, no, that's pretty obvious. Not everybody is. But there's power available to the other people, to everybody that's not used in miracles and healings and so forth. There's power available for them in some respect, whatever God has for you and has for me. Everybody's plan needs the power of God to be fulfilled. Or God's plan for everybody certainly needs the power of God to be fulfilled. So let's look at these two verses again. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaks divine secrets. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue Verse 4, edifies or builds himself up. Now, folks, I want you to turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What I really want to talk to you tonight about is authority in prayer. And the prayer I'm talking about and the exercise of authority I'm talking about is through speaking in other tongues or praying in other tongues. Let's start in verse 16. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We usually use this scripture as a a beginning point or a foundational scripture for teaching on how to be led by the Spirit of God. And it's good and it's right. But there's a context that Paul writes these things to the churches at Rome that goes beyond just being led by the Spirit. He's talking about we're led by the inward witness into a greater purpose for our lives. So he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Notice verse 19. See that word creature? It's used a couple of different places. It means Creation. It's the same word that's used in First Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. One translation says of that a new species of being. Now, folks, there's only two things that God created: one is the earth, and the other is man, specifically the new birth. So when it's talking about the creature or the creation, it's got to either be talking about man born again, man, man whose human spirit has been reborn or or, uh, renewed or he's talking about the earth itself now in these next several verses he's talking about the earth so to avoid confusion I'm going to use the word earth that's not what it means it means the creation uh, the totality of the creation not just the earth but for the sake of understanding let me change that word around and we'll see it as we get down another couple of scriptures you'll see why it's right Paul said, For the earnest expectation of the earth waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the earth was made subject to vanity. The word vanity means moral depravity. It's talking about the curse that came upon the earth. For the earth was made subject to moral depravity, or the law of sin and death, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Now folks, that last half of the verse, there's no way you can understand what it's saying or what it's trying, the truth that it's trying to bring out by the way that it's translated. And you can see that the translators had trouble with it. Because they had to add some words in there to fit what they thought it was saying. Notice where it says the same. The phrase the same is in italics. Let's read this verse again and pull that out. For the creation the earth was made subject to vanity. The law of sin and death. Not willingly but by reason of him who have subjected hope. Now, I know that doesn't make sense in the way we talk, but let's identify a couple of the players here. Who subjected the earth to the law of sin and death? Well, it wasn't God, so it had to be Adam. So Adam, through his sin and Eve, they were both guilty in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, the earth, that which was made perfect. Remember God said before he made man right at the end of the creation events, He looked at at the earth and said that it was very good. And that's when he put man in the middle of it and gave him authority over all the earth. Well, it was a perfect existence. It was a perfect place. There was no sin nature. There was no curse. There was nothing that could hurt or harm in any way whatsoever. God's greatest creation, which was man. But the earth paid the price for Adam and Eve's sin too. And so here where it says that the earth was subjected Not willingly to the law of sin and death, but by reason of him who has subjected. The only thing, the only translation that makes sense in this concerning the word hope. It's not like Adam was hopeful of something when he sinned. That can't be what he's talking about. So why is the word hope there? Well, we're going to have to put in our own, add in our own words to the translation too. Because of the, the difference in the languages between the Greek language and the English language. So it says the the earth was subjected to the vanity or the law of sin and death, not willingly, but by reason of Adam who subjected it to the law of sin and death. Yet there is hope. The point that this verse of scripture is trying to bring out is that it's not hopeless. There is still hope, even for the earth. Now, because God created the earth, in many ways, it's a living thing. I don't mean a human thing. But in many ways the earth and the operations in the earth have a life of their own. So here where it's talking about there, yet there is hope. Verse 21 tells us what that hope is. Because the earth itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now notice what it's saying. It's saying the earth is waiting. In verse 19 it says the earth is waiting for the manifestations of the sons of God. In other words, the earth is waiting for things to go back like it was before the sin of Adam and Eve, before the fall in in the Garden of Eden. The earth is looking for a return to the way things were. And notice what it says that return is. It's the manifestation or the appearing of the sons of God. Now, folks, I don't have any doubt that in the strictest sense, this is talking about the fulfillment of Jesus on the cross completing God's plan of redemption so that we could be made righteous but I can't help but believe it means more than that too I can't help but believe it means the manifestation of the sons of God even as we shall appear when Jesus comes to get us I think the earth is waiting for the rapture I think the earth is waiting for the church to rise up and be the church before we are raptured Now folks, there's a lot of things that are taking place in the earth today that are either different from what things used to be or increased from what used to be. The Bible talks about at the end and even in the uh, uh, the seven years of tribulation, the beginning of the seven years of tribulation and then again at the the midpoint of the seven years of tribulation. The Bible talks about earthquakes being a, a sign of Jesus coming. Earthquakes in diverse places. There are more earthquakes taking place every day than ever before. You can go to some of these websites that track these things, and you'll find out that it's not unusual for there to be a thousand earthquakes in any one given day. Now, many of them, most of them are minor. We only hear about the ones that are big or uh, something significant. But the earth is shaking, and things are changing. Things are changing. I know we hear a lot about climate change. I believe in climate change. The stupid part is to think that man has something to do with it or a man can do something about it. You know, before they they invest these trillions of dollars to replace fossil fuels and all this other kind of stuff that political um, entities propose, why don't they just take just something simple like $100 million and go try to make it rain somewhere where it's dry? If they can't do that, then they can't do the rest of it, folks. There's no way man can fix it. And instead of realizing it for what it is, a sign of the end, a sign of Jesus coming, the devil has influenced many people to follow his agenda, which is always about controlling you. So here the earth is waiting. It's waiting for things to happen. It's waiting for not just the one singular event of Jesus coming back for the church, but it's waiting for the sons of God to rise up and exercise our authority. And be who Jesus redeemed us to be. Because that the creation. Or the earth itself. Also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Under the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole earth. Groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's groaning more now. Than it was in Paul's day. And not only they. Notice the word they is in italics too. It's kind of hard to, re, to relate. Relate. To the earth as being a living entity, not only the earth of the creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Folks, there's only one thing that creates a problem for us as believers relative to what we see the Bible say we are. And who we live to be. There's only one thing that makes the difference there. And that's the flesh that we live in. It's the flesh that tries to talk us out of. With the devil's help certainly. But it's the flesh that tries to talk us out of. The fact that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's the flesh that tries to tell us. That we don't have authority through our words like the Bible says we do. It's the flesh that tries to take us out of anything and everything. Through the the devil's work of delaying time or or whatever the case might be, without the flesh, without the hindrances of this sin-touched flesh that was born under the bondage of the law of sin and death, without that, we really could be Jesus on the earth, just like he says we should be. The only thing that holds us back from doing the works of Jesus and doing the greater works that he said we would do, he said we'd do them. He said the power of the Holy Ghost was given to us so that we could do them. The only thing that holds us back, folks, is this flesh. And so that's where the groaning comes in on our part. That's when the pain or the difficulty that we experience, the condemnation that the devil brings upon us because we're not living up to who we know the Bible says we are, And who the Bible says Jesus made us to be. Get rid of the flesh, and we all walk in the Spirit without even a hint or a temptation to turn back to the things of the world. That doesn't make our flesh our enemy, but it's certainly the battleground that the enemy uses against us. And not only the earth, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope or no longer hope. For what a man seeth, why yet does he hope for? See, once something that you're believing for, remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for. You may hope for divine healing in your body. And so you find the Word of God, healing scriptures in the Word of God, so that you can stand to receive that promise or that which we hope for. And then when it manifests in our bodies, we no longer hope for it. We don't hope for the things that we see. We only hope for the things that are unseen. But faith reaches into the realm of the unseen and makes a physical reality of those things, and that becomes the end of our hope. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now this word for infirmities is the word weakness. Weakness. Now, if Paul is talking about man being weak, he's going to have to identify or describe what weakness he's talking about. Because as we've seen so many times before, the Bible has to interpret itself. We can't build a doctrine off of just one stray scripture. So in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. So when the Bible talks about weaknesses in the body, he's going to have to identify who we are. Or what he's talking about, what specific weakness he's talking about. Because if he didn't, it wouldn't make sense for him to say, let the weak say I'm strong. It wouldn't make sense for him to teach us by the Holy Ghost to call things that be not as though they are. See, this contradicts other principles of Scripture. Unless we identify what weakness he means. If he's talking about a specific weakness, then that's a different thing. Well, he must know that, and by the Holy Ghost he reveals to us the weakness he's referring to. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities or weaknesses, for, here's the weakness, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God." I'm going to interrupt this for just a minute and go back to John chapter 16. I'm going to come back to Romans chapter 8. But let me remind you of some things that uh, that John told us about the Holy Ghost. John chapter 16 verse 13. It says howbeit when he the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. Now Paul's talking about an infirmity of not knowing what to pray for as we ought. John says, and John wrote this 30 years after John, uh, 30 years after Peter was off the scene. Not quite 30. We uh, historical evidence, best historical evidence, tells us that uh, Paul was beheaded and martyred somewhere between 64 and 67 A.D. Well, John didn't write this until about 94 or 95 A.D. So that's about 30 years, 28 to 30 years. Now, we don't know if the things that John wrote were common knowledge among the church. I doubt very seriously that John just remembered when he was about 95 years old, oh yeah, Jesus said this about the Holy Ghost at the Last Supper. I would imagine that if most Christians of that day are anything like you and I, we'd always be wanting to know from those that were there, we'd be wanting Peter and John and the others to tell us, what was this like? Or what was that like? I don't think it was something that John just remembered everything all of a sudden. But how widespread was it? Was it something that, uh, that Paul knew? We don't see any interaction between Paul and John after the death of Jesus in the, uh, the first generation of the church. We know that, uh, that Peter had some interaction with Paul. Paul called him out on the way that he acted around the Gentiles when the Jews came from Jerusalem. He separated himself before. He had been eating dinner with them, rejoicing at the works of God that were taking place at the church at Antioch. But then when the Jews came from Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem, Peter pulled back and started treating them differently. And Paul called him out on it. We know in Acts chapter 15 that Paul went to Jerusalem to try to get some consensus on what the Gentiles should and should not have to do regarding the law of Moses. And it talks about James there, it talks about Peter there, and it just mentions the other apostles. It doesn't mention John by name. We would assume that he was there because he was a prominent figure, and this was a pretty big deal, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure that Paul ever met John. I would assume that he would or would have, but we don't know for sure. So we don't know if John, uh, if Paul knew the things that John writes to us In his gospel, particularly the things about the the Last Supper, the last night they were with Jesus, we don't know for sure that there was any interaction whatsoever. We don't know if there was anything that John had related in his preaching or his ministry in the first generation, the early days of the church. We don't know if Paul was affected by any of that, if that helped him understand, or if there were things that the Holy Ghost shared with him and revealed to him that were similar to these things or because of these things. We don't know. We don't know. We do know that John clearly tells us that a part of the the work of the Holy Ghost is to guide us. Now we started off in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. He leads us by the inward witness. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. And he talks about how that we're joint heirs with Christ. We read that. Here it tells us about the work of the Holy Ghost. John's telling us about the revelation of the Holy Ghost regarding guidance and leading us and taking us into the right place that God wants us to be. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, not part of the truth, but all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Notice He's talking about revelation. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, what's he going to show us? What's the Holy Ghost going to show us? All things that the Father hath are mine. Verse 15. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Folks, I want you to realize something. Jesus is glorified when we receive revelation. See, so often I think we take the attitude and the approach that we sure would like the Holy Ghost to show us some things. But we want to keep a humble attitude. We don't want to try to force the Holy Ghost to do something. These things that happen and occur at His will, not ours. But Jesus tells us, Jesus says, the Holy Ghost will glorify you by showing you everything that the Father has and everything the Father has is mine. He'll show you the things of me. That means anything that He has, Because we're in Christ, we have a right to have and right to know. Now, that doesn't mean we have a right to know things pertaining to other people rather than ourselves. It's not like we can go and ask God to betray somebody else's secrets. Deuteronomy 30, 30, I believe it is, says the secret thing belongs to the Lord. So he's not going to tell you other people's secrets. I am so glad God doesn't reveal my secrets. I'm even more glad he doesn't reveal your secrets to me. That would color the way we operated in life, wouldn't it? It would affect us greatly. But there are things that are Jesus, the things that belong to Jesus because of his conquest, because of his fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. These things belong to us. We should expect the Holy Ghost to show us things. We should expect the Holy Ghost to show us things to come. Folks, there's only one thing Jesus said, leave alone. He'll take care of that, and that's the time that he comes back. That's it. Everything else he says is fair game. With the exception that we just referred to, he's not going to talk to you about me or me about you unless there's some way for one of us to help the other. But outside of that, Jesus said everything the Father has is mine. And the Holy Ghost By showing you things to come. By revealing these things that belong to you in Christ as a joint heir. Joint heir, not junior heir. Joint heir. Those are things that glorify him, glorify his name. We don't think of that too often, do we? We don't think of Jesus being glorified by our spiritual growth. But he is. We don't think of Jesus being glorified by the revelation of the Holy Ghost, say the revelation of righteousness. But that glorifies Jesus. We don't think of somebody taking hold of their healing and growing in the reality of healing for the physical body as being glorifying Jesus. We look at that as a benefit for us. But it glorifies Him. Let me read these again and we'll go back to Romans chapter 8. Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. Thank God he does. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine. Notice how he glorifies him. The Holy Ghost glorifies Jesus by receiving of his that which belongs to Jesus and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and pick up where we were. We'll start again with verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, our weakness. What weakness? We know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. One translation says, with groanings which cannot be uttered in articulate speak, speech. P.C. Nelson said the, mo- the simplest way to translate this verse, particularly the last part of the verse, is God talk. God talk. Well, folks, what is God talk if not utterance of the, by the Holy Ghost? Acts 2, 4, they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If there's utterance that the Spirit of God gives us that is not considered to be God talk, somebody tell me what it is. The fact that the Holy Ghost is giving us the words to speak in other tongues. That is God talk. See, folks, the supernatural part is not who's doing the talking. You and I speak with tongues. The Holy Ghost has no need to speak with tongues. You do. I do. That's not the supernatural part. The supernatural part is what is being said. The what that is being said. In other words, the supernatural part is the utterance that we're speaking out. Now, granted, it's all a supernatural endeavor, a supernatural exercise. But the God part is what we're saying, not the fact that we're talking at all. So likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, our weakness, the weakness of not knowing what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, with utterance in other tongues, with God talk. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to God. Notice they put according to the will of God. Now, I, I believe they're exactly right. I believe what they added there was uh, was profitable for us. Clearly, it's talking about the will of God. Clearly, it's talking about, clearly, Paul is identifying that the Holy Ghost would always pray in line with, the, whole, with uh, the will of God. The Holy Ghost doesn't speak of himself, but he speaks that which he hears. Well, what's he hearing and who's he hearing it from? He's certainly not giving us utterance or revealing things according to what he hears people say. He's revealing things to us according to what he hears God the Father say. And so Paul is simply telling us you don't have to worry about what's being said when you're speaking in other tongues. It's always according to the will of God. The Holy Ghost would be unable to give us utterance to pray something or to speak something contrary to the will of God. He'd be unable to do so, he would be unrighteous to do so. And that's not possible. So, Paul is telling us not only do we not have to worry about praying the will of God when we're speaking in other tongues, he's saying God knows the mind of the Spirit. He understands what the language is that we're speaking. So, we don't have to be concerned about the devil being involved. Verse 28. Here's the denominational world's favorite scripture. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, if you pull that scripture out of context and just say, well, we know that all things work together for good. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that the things that are happening in people's lives is working together for good. We can find people that use this scripture as justification for tragedies that take place in their lives. We can see people using this scripture to explain why sickness and disease has come upon someone. The church used to talking about people, God bringing sickness upon people, Christians, to deepen their piety. I'm not sure what that means, but it's not right. We hear stories. I'm glad that I've never experienced this. Hope I never will. But we hear stories. Fred Price told a story about the young child that was killed, ran out in the street and was killed by a car. This was before he was saved, long before God had ever talked to him about being a pastor. But he said the Christians that came to the funeral came with the good news that God had a purpose in this. He said that was the one thing that made him turn against God. Thank God he reached him. He found him, but he found him in a whole different way from what was being told him by other Christians. Folks, we can't look at the circumstances of life and just assume that God's behind them. We're supposed to judge these things and identify if the God that's always good is behind that or if it's the devil. And too many Christians don't know the difference between what God's doing and what the devil's doing. That's a tragedy. Well, if Paul is not saying that, if he's not saying that everything just works out for your good, then what is he saying? He's saying after we pray in the Holy Ghost, we know that we're praying the will of God. We know that the utterance that the Holy Ghost gives us is according to the will of God. We're speaking divine secrets. But notice what those secrets manifest to. Those secrets manifesting uh, manifest into God by the Holy Ghost working in our lives To bring about the will of God. To bring about the plan and the purpose of God. To bring about the blessings of God rather than curses. Things don't always work together for good. But when you pray in the Holy Ghost they do. When you pray in the Holy Ghost. When you allow the Holy Ghost to help you to pray. Because you don't know how to pray in every situation as you ought. When you yield yourself to be used by the Holy Ghost. And to speak the divine secrets that he gives us in other tongues. That's what brings things about. That's what brings about the good things. Remember when you speak in an unknown tongue, you're edifying yourself. The power that God gives to strengthen us spiritually, to help us grow spiritually, to receive revelation, to be shown the things that belong to Jesus. All those things work together for good and accomplish God's purpose in your life. Let's keep reading. Verse 28 again, and we know, we don't hope so, we don't think so, we don't, maybe so. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Clearly that's after speaking with other tongues. For whom he, God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also he called. And whom he called, them also he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, folks, Paul is not saying, and the Holy Ghost is not prompting Paul to say, these verses about foreknowing and predestination, foreordaining and called and chosen and so forth, he's not using these terms to talk about the difference between people in the world, the unsaved, and the Christians. He's writing this to Christians. See, Jesus said, there are two times, two places that Jesus said, one's in Matthew chapter 20, the other's in Matthew chapter 22. On both occasions, Jesus said, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, people latch on to those things. Some people latch on to those things. The predestination crowd certainly takes a hold of those scriptures and says, well, see, many are called, but God chooses who he wants in his family. That's not what it means. The word called means invited. It just simply means there are more people that hear the invitation than respond. There are more people that are invited into the family of God that accept the work of Jesus and make Jesus the Lord of their lives. There are many more people that are invited into the family of God by hearing the truth of the word uh, word of God, the gospel of Jesus, having died for our sins, our sicknesses, and our our material well-being. Many more people hear that than respond to it. Who did he predestinate? God predestinated everybody. The Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means he died for the sinner that goes to hell. Just as much as he died for you and me. What makes the difference between the sinner that goes to hell and you and me? We accepted what we heard to be true and entered into the family of God. It was based on our will. It was based on our choice. Not God's choice. God's choice was to send Jesus as a redemption for everybody. So that good news belongs to everybody. No matter where they come from or what their past is or what they've done or what they haven't done. None of those things matter. Because everybody is invited into the family of God. Well what makes the difference in who is chosen? The ones that choose to enter in. So when he's talking about these things he's not saying some are foreordained, some are predestinated. He's not talking about that at all. He's simply saying God's plan for you is to take part of and reach every one of these aspects of God's plan of redemption. For whom he did foreknow, them also he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. What did God predestinate for every believer to become like Jesus? In character, in nature, and in power. For whom he did foreknow them also did he predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus was the firstborn. Jesus was the first one born from death unto life. He became death. He became sin and death for you and me. He died the death of the unrighteous to pay the penalty for Adam's original sin and for all of our individual sins. And at the point, the very moment in time that that price was paid... God said, that's enough. The Spirit of God came back upon him. He was born again. We don't have a similar born-again experience as Jesus. We have the same born-again experience as Jesus. The Bible says Jesus was born again by the Spirit of God himself. Well, that's who caused you to be born again, isn't it? Moreover, verse 30, whom he did predestinate, them also he called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. Paul is making a progression here. He's not talking about spiritual growth. He's not talking about steps of Christianity. He's certainly not talking about the difference between the unsaved and the saved. He's not talking about that at all. He's just simply saying God had everything in mind when he thought of you. He wanted you to know that you're justified. He wants you to know that you've been glorified with Jesus. He wants you to know that he's called you. He wants you to know... That everything that could be yours is yours. And that's all these scriptures are trying to say. Verse 31. Here's the kicker. Here's the proof. What shall we then say to these things? In other words, the understanding or the knowledge of these truths that God predestinated you and me and every other believer, every other member of the body of Christ... To be conformed to the image of his son. Again conformed to the image of son. his son. is talking about character. It's talking about holiness. But it's also talking about power. We know that it's talking about power. Because Jesus told the disciples at the last supper. The works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do. Because I go into my father. Every one of us is supposed to be a mirror image of Jesus. What shall we then say to these things? If. God before us. The word if there is the word since. Since God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How can God withhold anything when he's already given you the best he's got? How can he withhold anything when you become a joint heir of Christ? A recipient of everything that God has. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. See again the predestination folks. They'll use this word "elect" and say that's a different level than chosen. See, you might be chosen, but you may not be elect. John Calvin, on his deathbed, did not know he's the the one that the author of Calvinism, the author of the predestination idea. That God's picking and choosing. On his deathbed, he didn't know where he was going. That is so sad. That's certainly not the place God wants us to be. John wrote to the church and say, "We know," and said to them, "We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren." He said, "We have reason to know. There are ways that we can know that we're in the family of God." Calvin didn't. One of his last statements before he took his last breath was a a hope that he conveyed to somebody that he was part of the elect. Well, if he had Jesus in his heart, which he did, he found out momentarily, just moments later, I mean, that he was part of God's elect. But folks, you need to realize the devil will use any tool he has to try to keep you from knowing the truth. And there's only one source for truth, and that's the word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The predestination stuff doesn't make anybody free. It maintains the bondage of the enemy. Now, folks, I've got a question for you. And and I have to apologize because the last two times that I've used this this, uh, verse in Romans chapter 8, About we know that all things work together for good. The last two times, I have forgotten to make one of the most important points about the whole thing. The whole passage of scripture. And that's this. Why? Put your thinking caps on for a minute. Why is it necessary for the Holy Ghost to give us utterance to pray in other tongues? Why doesn't God just do it? God already knows what his will is. God already knows what his plan for your life is. God could accomplish anything and everything in your life that he wanted it to be. Why does the Holy Ghost give us utterance in other tongues? Why doesn't God just say, or why didn't Jesus just say, Now when the Holy Ghost has come, do not worry about a thing. Because he's going to do your praying for you. And he will always pray the plan and the purpose of God. He'll always pray the will of God for you and in your life. So don't worry about it at all. Lean back and just enjoy your time here on the earth while everything works together for good. Because the Holy Ghost makes it happen. Why didn't he do that? Do you remember Genesis 126? God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have authority. Folks, everything, everything, every part of our Christian life, every part of the Bible, should be read through the filter of the fact that man has been given authority on the earth. See, if God did the praying for us, if the Holy Ghost worked outside of us rather than being our helper, I think a lot of times people might prefer him to be our doer rather than our helper. But the fact that he gives us utterance to speak in other tongues ensures that we're the ones that are going to be praying even though we don't know, even though our understanding is unfruitful, even though we won't know in more than 99.99% of the time what we're saying we can trust by faith that the Holy Ghost is always praying the will of God and therefore we are praying and utilizing our authority on the earth to bring about all things working together for our good one of the greatest ways we can pray with authority is to pray in other tongues we may not know the authority that we're exercising But we do know that we're given divine secrets through supernatural utterance. And by faith, we're acting on the the direction of the Holy Ghost or the direction of the Word of God to enable us to pray. I need to finish this. Let me read this again real quickly. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. How can we be more than conquerors in every one of these adversities? How can we be more than conquerors? Well, one means that he's just identified is praying in the Holy Ghost. So if we're praying in the Holy Ghost, it means we'll overcome nakedness. If we're praying in the Holy Ghost, it means we'll overcome famine. If we're praying in the Holy Ghost, we can overcome tribulation or peril or sword or persecution. Praying in the Holy Ghost, and folks, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. Paul found this out the persecution that came against him no wonder he said to the Corinthian church I pray with tongues more than all of you he's found that to be his safety net he's found he doesn't know what he's going to uh, find in the next town he goes to he doesn't know what the attitude of the people is going to be there was a certain pattern that he would follow he'd go into the synagogues first of all he always went to towns that were big enough to have a synagogue then he'd go into the synagogues and he'd reason with the Jews. According to the Old Testament, they found out how smart he was. And so they gave the ear to him, figuring he had to know what he was talking about. And then he preached Jesus. In most cases, they threw him out of the synagogues. And so he went somewhere else and started doing miracles. That made him doubly angry. And so they'd run him out of town. There's only one place we have record of that Paul went to that he wasn't run out of town in the first go-round where he visited a town. That's not true of every time. He wasn't run out of Philippi every time that he went, or Ephesus either. But the first time he went to a city, the only one we have record of, that he wasn't run out of town, there's only one example. Paul found this out through experience. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, For I am persuaded that neither neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. In other words, things that are unseen. He says, I'm persuaded that none of the unseen things, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have some time, it might be worth your while to go back and read what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church About all the things that came against him. And the list. He seems to take pride in being able to produce such a long list of the things that he suffered. But if you look at it. It really is just a list of things that weren't strong enough to turn him away from God. Or to keep him from serving God. He's saying some of the same things here. He's saying the power of the Holy Ghost given to, unto us by giving us utterance in other tongues, leads us out of defeat and into victory in every category. It brings the power of God to bear in your own life so that you can say with him nothing can separate you from the love of God. Why is that important? Well, if Paul's talking about being joined together with Christ by God's love, he's talking about victory. Old Testament scripture says, because he set his love upon me, I'll deliver him. Paul's list is proof that he set his love upon him. And God delivered him every time. Maybe not as quick as he wanted. Time always gets us, doesn't it? Maybe not as quick as he wanted. Maybe not in the exact way that he he thought might be best. But God always came through. When you pray by the utterance of the Holy Ghost not knowing what you should pray for as you ought but trusting him to give you utterance according to the will of God. You can know that you know that you know that you know that in many cases God is having you pray for yourself pray concerning things that are either in the works or things that are in the works against you down the road. It's a guarantee that things will work out for our good let's pray oh thank you father for the holy ghost thank you that he reveals all the things that are of that belong to jesus because everything that belongs to jesus he said belongs to us holy spirit we trust in you we rely on you to guide us into all truth guide us into the reality of the righteousness of god guide us into the reality of The provision of God. Guide us into the reality of the healing power of God. Guide us into the reality of who we are in Christ. Holy Spirit, we'll give place to you. We will allow you to give us utterance so that we can pray the perfect will of the Father. So that we can say with Paul that we know that all things that take place in our life work together for our good because we've prayed them out in the Spirit because we've prayed them out with divine secrets because we've prayed them out in God talk thank you Father that the Holy Ghost never leaves us nor forsakes us thank you for your great love that can never end toward us and we thank you that nothing can separate us from that love